Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. So you just heard that tagline for my podcast where I say that I celebrate unsung heroes, myth busts, historical lies, and rediscover forgotten stories that change our world. So one of the things that I'm trying to do with this podcast is something that a lot of history podcasters do, and that's do revisionist history. What that means is, is that you're trying to look at history from a different perspective than it's usually looked at. If you do military history, you're usually looking at things from the perspective of a general. If you're doing political history, you're usually looking at things from the perspective of a president or prime minister, just looking at the big picture. In this episode, we're really going to do revisionist history because we're going to look at history through the perspective of illegal drugs, specifically through the perspective of marijuana. Now, this isn't as gonzo of an idea as you might think. In my days as an Ottoman historian, I knew someone doing his thesis on opium smuggling in interwar Turkey and beyond. In the Opium Wars, and the massive trade in opium between South Asia and China in the 19th century had a huge role in the history of colonialism and globalization. Today, specifically, I'm talking with David Bienenstock about how hashish arrived in Europe via the Napoleonic invasions. In 1798, Napoleon invaded Egypt in a failed attempt to install colonial rule. Brent soldiers succeeded in adopting the local custom of consuming hashish a practice with a long history in the Islamic world, and I can back that up. But when the French occupation ended, French soldiers brought a taste for cannabis home that led directly to the formation of Paris's famed Club de Hashishins. This is where Alexandre Dumas, Victor Hugo, Honoré de Balzac, and Charles Baudelaire drank coffee laced with marijuana. This is going to be one of my more unconventional episodes. I met David at a history podcaster's meetup at the Podcast Movement Conference, David is the host of the Great Moments in Weed History podcast. He was a head of content at High Times Magazine, and he's been a columnist and contributor to Vice, GQ, The Guardian, and other publications. And he's also a marijuana activist. So based on that description, if you don't think this episode will be your cup of tea and you're more interested in my more straightforward episodes like World War II history, no problem. You're more than welcome to check those out. But I really recommend sticking around because I had a blast talking with David about these things and feel like I'm living up to my mission to look at history through perspectives that it's not normally seen. And hallucinogens have been with humanity since recorded history. It's been a part of innumerable religious rituals and traditions. And we get into that long history in this episode, but focus on the French occupation of Egypt, how marijuana enters Europe, how it eventually comes to the United States, that whole through line to give an explanation of why marijuana is illegal today from a historical background. So I hope you enjoyed this discussion with David Bienenstock. David, welcome to the show. Oh, my pleasure. Your podcast topic, I'm pretty excited about this because this is probably going to be one of the most interesting episodes on my show so far because I've gone over some interesting and important but pretty well-tread ground like Pickett's Charge and the Battle of Gettysburg or discussing America's rationale for dropping the atomic bomb in World War II. We get a look at the history of humanity through the perspective of marijuana. So, uh, And that's a great thing about podcasting. This probably wouldn't be a course listed in a traditional university's history faculty or history curriculum. 
how did you decide to start this podcast? I guess that's a good starting point. Well, let me start by saying uh, any deans of history departments that are pretty cool and hip and uh, <laughs> looking for a... <laughs> I'm ready to go academic under the right circumstances. So uh, shout out, shout out uh, weed smoking history deans. Uh, but yeah. You know, my background is in journalism. Uh, I've been writing about cannabis for uh, about 15 years. I started out at High Times. Uh, I've written for Vice. I write for a place now called Leafly. Um, so this has been a long-term, you know, subject for me. I'm also a cannabis consumer. I'm a member of the community. I, you know, it's something I believe in strongly. I consider myself sort of an advocate journalist. Uh, um, you know, which is also a long and I think proud tradition. And uh, I happen to be pretty sure that I've been on the right side of history with the cannabis issue. You know, things have changed a lot in the 15 years I've been doing this. Um, and so now coming into this new era, um, I started the podcast with my partner, Abdullah Saeed, who uh, we worked together on a Vice uh, television show called Bang Appetit. Um, and we've both been longtime journalists and media makers around cannabis. And so, uh, you know, working on this show together, there was just tons of downtime. Uh, and, you know, we would generally spend it smoking weed and, and telling each other stories and making each other laugh. Uh, and when, you know, about a year ago, we found ourselves... Uh, I had left High Times. He had left Vice. We really wanted to do something together independently. We were really attracted to podcasting as a form uh, where we could have complete creative control. And we honestly tried out a bunch of different ideas for a show. And the history uh, format just really clicked for us. We're both into history in general. And I think sort of more importantly... As things change so much with legalization, you know, we both really fear that the actual true grassroots underground uh, resistance outlaw history of cannabis and how it came to be legalized uh, is going to be sort of greenwashed away as uh, corporate interests move in, as this becomes more, for want of a better word, mainstream. Um, this idea that uh, people pushed back against this terrible, oppressive governmental uh, program to arrest people and to uh, disrupt minority communities and to, you know, go after dissidents and all these terrible things are going to be ignored and, and swept under the rug uh, in favor of stories about all the money to be made, uh, now that it's legal. So, uh, um, you know, this culture has its own heroes. We have our own, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's a, it's a story of oppression. And on the other hand, it's a story about resistance and, and ultimately, uh, overcoming and subverting that, uh, prohibition system. So, you know, there's a lot to explore. Uh, uh, at the same time, we have a lot of fun with it and, and, and you know, laugh as much as we uh, as we learn, I guess. Yeah, I'm really interested in this topic because I think for almost everyone, the way they'd understand weed in America is through the war on drugs, unless they're 
coming at it from a different place, like activism or whatever. But I'm sure it was viewed very differently in the past because like you've discussed and what we're going to discuss, it's been with humanity since the very beginning. So different cultures will understand it in different ways. So what was that perspective and how did it change over time? And even uh, before uh, I was getting ready to record and called you up, I Googled the legalization of marijuana in Iowa, uh, just because that's where I'm from. And I wrote a book about Iowa called How Iowa Conquered the World. You know, <laughs> there's a book that will just burn up the bestseller charts on Iowan history. People can't get enough of that. Um, <laughs> but something about that is that in World War II, it was a huge uh, industrial producer of industrial hemp for things like textiles and rope and everything else. And just in August, I think the Iowa Senate approved uh, what they call the Iowa Industrial Hemp Act to re-legalize it, at least industrially, to produce in Iowa. So there you go, from World War II back to today. And this is just one aspect of it. So I guess the starting point is 10,000 years ago. So you mentioned, I think somewhere in the description of your show, that humanity's history with marijuana goes back 10,000 years. Used medicinally or smoked, has that been going on for thousands of years? Or is this something more in modern history? Or where does it all start? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah well, when we go back 10,000 years, um, you know, that's uh, give or take a year or two. You know, of course, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, but uh, that's the earliest signs we have of it. That's the dawn of agriculture in general. Um, and I believe that that's no coincidence and uh no less uh a personage than uh, carl sagan who uh we did a whole episode about and who was an enthusiastic uh albeit closeted cannabis consumer throughout his life in one of his books he speculated that cannabis may have been the first ever cultivated plant um so of course in foraging societies that predate agriculture um you have people identifying useful plants, gathering them, even, you know, sort of moving to where they know they are. Uh, but the next step from there to cultivating to agriculture, uh, that's about 10,000 years ago. Uh, Carl Sagan speculated that cannabis uh, may have been the plant that inspired that. I certainly uh, think that makes a lot of sense when you have a plant that can uh, provide food that can also provide, uh, medicine that can provide, um, you know, industrial uses can be made into clothing, can be made into all these other useful products that makes a lot of sense. And so that transition, of course, for humanity is a bit of a mixed bag, <laughs> you know, um, that's sort of a whole other other, other topic. I really love a, a, a book called Sex at Dawn that really talks about what life was like in these foraging societies and and uh, how it might have been a much better deal than, than we've been led to believe. But one of the good things we got out of agriculture is uh, a steadier supply of weed. Um, so that, uh, you know, that's one for the plus column. And. From there, you know, the vast majority of our experience with cannabis as human beings is is that this plant is considered special and revered and useful, you know, whether that's hemp, uh, ropes and sails powering the age of exploration, which is also, of course, a very mixed bag, uh, depend on if you are doing the exploring or the 
one being explored, but uh, that aside, a big thing to put aside, um, or whether it is as a medicinal plant, um, we have records going back in China, uh, like to five or 6,000 BC, maybe. I, you know, I, I don't have all my, I, I should say I, I'm, I'm a historian only through doing this show. Um, I'm learning, uh, I do put a lot, I'm a trained journalist. I've been doing that for 15 years. I, I know how to research a story. I promise you, if you check out the show from a history perspective, you will get real history. Uh, but I'm not a real historian. So, um, but, but, the medicinal use goes back, you know, five, six thousand years BC. It's documented in China. That's a long tradition. It's it's only a blip in history. Uh, this prohibition, and as you say, we with good reason, but we often focus on that uh, when we look at this subject, whether it's prohibition and what's wrong with it or moving out of prohibition, but we don't always take the long 10,000 year perspective. And in terms of ancient societies, I guess that'd be difficult to lock down because you have something, you have marijuana that it's not going to be in archeology span remains. So I'm just trying to think, huh, what evidence it actually, oh, or does it, it actually it? is. Oh, really? We've found, yeah, there's been archaeological finds with seeds. Uh, there was a uh, ancient shaman in um, Siberia who had actual, uh, they had figured out some way to sort of protect the actual plant matter, and it was tested, and it was uh, uh, found to be, you know, still psychoactive even. I, 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 I'm, I, I should look that one up to get the date. Yeah, something I should check out in terms of like an archaeology site, especially something that has to do with a religious ritual where you'd have the shaman and and that kind of thing going on. So I went to an archaeology site in Turkey that is one of the oldest archaeology sites that has been discovered called Gobekli Tepe. It dates back nine or 10,000 years. This is before the oldest human settlement has been found. So it's a site of, it's a religious worship site that was something that hunter-gatherers would go to before there'd even be cities around. So the structures are, look like humans that are very huge and block-shaped that, I should ask someone if there'd be um, evidence of marijuana found there. But the humans, at least, they look like something out of Pink Floyd cover art or... Um, Who's that guy from the Talking Heads who wore those enormous suits? Uh, David Byrne. There it is. Yeah. So it kind of looks like that. So if that's a tie-in at all, then not very good evidence, but it's what I have to go off of. So there you go. Yeah. So uh, the, what we're going to talk about and something that you focused on specifically in an episode is uh, one of the main ways that uh, marijuana enters Europe. And I'm curious if this is how it also comes to the United States or if there's a, another path that it gets there and, and how it's received today. But you point to uh, Napoleon invading Egypt, and then that's how marijuana comes to Europe. So how does that story kick off? Um, yeah, well, it's, it's 1798, and, and uh, Napoleon is he's actually invading Egypt and Syria, uh, which were then part of the Ottoman Empire. And the plan is, you know, they want to establish French colonial rule and push on to India. This is all part of a big sort of army of the Orient that he has raised. Um, and, you know, that does not work. Uh, they do not win. Uh, colonialism for once is held in check. Uh, but 
while they're in Egypt, the French uh, soldiers, you know, very much the rank and file, uh, make a rather, well, they make a couple of interesting discoveries. Um, one is the Rosetta Stone. Uh, it is the same campaign. They're digging a latrine, these French soldiers, and they discover the Rosetta Stone, which, of course, you know, has... Uh, a decree in three different languages, uh, and this unlocks a lot of our understanding of hiero. Uh, this is a word I always struggle to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> hieroglyphs, I, hieroglyphics. Yeah. Yes, correct. Um, so that's you know sort of an interesting aside, but uh, same soldiers, same place. They discover the Rosetta Stone, but more uh, more importantly to me, perhaps because I still don't read hier- hier- hieroglyphics is uh you know they they get introduced to hashish culture in Egypt which uh at the time already has a long history in uh in Egypt in Islamic culture um but to the Europeans they only know cannabis in its non-psychoactive form you know we call it hemp it's the same plant um but with THC levels so low that you really can't get high off it. That's their only familiarity. Uh, they come to Egypt and uh, I guess in their downtime from uh, trying to conquer and oppress an entire people, uh, they discover hashish and um, they like it. You know, not not surprisingly, most people, not everybody, it's not for everybody, but most people who who try it tend to like it. Um, and that doesn't go over so well as it often does not with the higher ups in the French uh, military. Is it these soldiers that bring it back to Europe or do the <laughs> leaders in Napoleon's general staff, do they see a use for it? Do they think, okay, recreationally is okay. Or is it something among the lower ranks of soldiers that sort of gets smuggled back into Europe? <clears throat> well, you know, it's, I, I think the first, the first thing that happens is, is this sort of goes up the, you know, and you can imagine, you know, if they had been winning this pro, you know, the uh, cannabis is one of the great scapegoats in, in the world. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, so I imagine if they had been winning in this military campaign, maybe nobody cares that the soldiers uh, are, you know, smoking hookah and and enjoying sort of these locally made edibles. Uh, but they're losing. Everybody's looking for uh, somebody to blame. It makes it all the way up to Napoleon. And in and now and he issues under his own name a decree to the uh, French Army of Occupation, and I'm, I'll, I will read it to you. I will not attempt to do a Napoleon uh, imitation, <laughs> but if you want to, go for it. <laughs> not gonna happen. Uh, it, it. But so Napoleon's words to the soldiers are: It is forbidden in all of Egypt to use certain Muslim beverages made with hashish or likewise to inhale the smoke from hashish. Habitual drinkers and smokers of this plant lose their reason and are victims of violent delirium, which is the lot of those who give themselves full to excesses of all sorts. He really would have liked that movie in the 30s, Reefer Madness. 
<laughs> yeah, well, we always think of my, my partner, Abdullah, in the podcast. Uh, we both realized, you know, we're talking about Napoleon and and weed. And I said to him, uh, when you picture Napoleon, are you picturing the Napoleon from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure exact, movie? That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. Yeah, bowling, eating ice cream, going to Waterloo, the water park. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So then... Then we realized the whole idea of uh, us doing a weed history show uh, is probably prefaced in our in our shared love of that of that movie, although we never discussed it until uh, Napoleon came up. <laughs> um, but as you can imagine, you know, uh, well, so Napoleon issues this decree, and of course, that's the end of it. Nobody ever smokes hashish again, right? Exactly. It's done completely. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, everyone. Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yes, as with all attempts to ban cannabis, uh, people just give up. No, uh, the French soldiers basically ig completely ignore this decree. Uh, there is, you know, some uh, documented evidence of the time letters and such explaining that, like, this is not working. Everybody's still getting lit. Uh, and so the other thing is, um, you know, to get to your question of how, uh, cannabis actually starts blowing into Europe, um, you know, people don't tend to document their international drug smuggling as well as I'd like them to. Yeah, uh, that's too bad. And it's, <laughs> and you, nor should you, uh. But, uh, you know, the first uh, the first responsibility of every revolutionary is not to get caught. Uh, and uh, spotty record keeping is probably a good uh, good way to avoid getting caught. Uh, but one thing we do know is Napoleon had these um, three scientists that he brought with him to Egypt. Well, N Napoleon's army. Napoleon's not there. He's not in Egypt, but 
he has sent these three scientists along with the army uh, so that they can study uh, Egyptian country and its customs. Uh, I'm assuming this is a fairly standard thing to do when you're trying to conquer somebody. Um, and these three scientists all start smoking hash uh, as well. Um, and they, we know, sent home samples of hashish to colleagues of theirs in France so that they could study it. Um, and I would imagine this is the first psychoactive hashish that we know about to, you know, make this journey from Egypt to France. Just two things that came into my mind. First of all, yes, on Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, even though I've studied history academically for 10 or 15 or 20 years, whenever there's a historical figure that comes to mind that was in that movie, I never think of that person. <laughs> so, I mean, for example, I was uh, doing a promotion for my show and I wanted to find a voice actor to read something in the voice of Abraham Lincoln. I'm sure Daniel Day-Lewis did a great job, you know, won an Oscar in the movie Lincoln. <laughs> I don't care. I think of the Lincoln from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and I gave notes to the actor. I showed him a video saying, read it like this, because <laughs> to me, that's always going to be Abraham Lincoln. So I don't care about the historical record. But the other thing with Hashish and that quote from Napoleon, that's interesting because that tracks really closely with what different Ottoman provincial rulers in Egypt said about people using hashish, they would blame problems domestically. These are Egyptian rulers with smokers and consumers of this product. So the term assassin that we know of, a lot of people think, oh, well, that's because the secretive cult up in the mountains in Iran would all smoke this. Well, that's not the case. It's um, the term for just sort of uh, scum rabble rouser was um, hashashi or one who consumes hashish. They didn't necessarily consume it, but it's just from a ruler's perspective, those two are correlated. So I don't know, some stodgy old politician would just call someone a dopehead, even if they didn't smoke marijuana. But in their minds, the consumption of it was correlated with this type of criminal activity. So Assassin and Hashashi, this rabble rouser, got connected with this group of people that actually went out and did political murder. So all, all that to say that Napoleon's perspective on these people is very similar to the rulers in Egypt themselves that would blame them for all these social problems. But yeah, to get back to your point on how it gets back to France and uh, how we don't have records and all that stuff. Yeah, uh, two quick two quick counterpoints. One, uh, I hope I'm breaking some news for you, but uh, Bill and Ted's three is in the works really? in production. Finally, that's been yes. in development hell forever. Yes, with both Keanu and uh, oh, forgive Alex me. Winter. Hey, thank you. And Alex, it was right. I was coming in one second. Friend of the podcast, both of them. Uh, and the original screenwriters. Yes. So that is amazing. And uh, to get to your other point, you know, I, I think this is really important. And this is something in great moments in weed history that we come back to all the time. There's something inherently anti-authoritarian about cannabis and the cannabis experience and that has always been under understood by those in power um, and particularly by those who who uh, wield that power illegitimately or against the interests of the people and so that's where these prohibitions come from that's where these stereotypes come from that's why the uh 
penalties against cannabis have never been proportionate to anything. You know, I, I personally believe it's a very beneficial plant uh, in a lot of ways. I think that that's fairly well proven to anybody who is able to, you know, look dispassionately at the evidence. Um, so then you ask yourself, well, how how can a society, uh, you know, lock people? I, I, I'm not going to go down the super dark road, but lock people in cages and do all of these horrible things to people for growing a beneficial plant. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it makes sense if you are in authority and you are using that authority illegitimately to on various different ways uh, maintain power. Well, you're going to look at this plant and the people who are drawn to it as a threat. Um, and that, as I say, so many of the episodes that, that, that we look at, it runs through that, whether it's on the micro level of just a single person or it's on the macro level, as you say, with these rulers of, of nations. It's the only thing that, in essence, does make sense. Um, I like to say uh, cannabis is not um, – oh, let me get my own quote right. <laughs> cannabis is not anti-establishment because it's illegal. It's illegal because it's anti-establishment. Um, and I think that fundamental understanding of prohibition um, really unlocks the – secret to why such a terribly misguided public policy uh, was ever started in the first place and, and how it was maintained for so long and is, of course, still in effect in most of the world. Yeah, I don't know enough about the science or the arguments to have a strong opinion on this one way or another, uh, at least in the contemporary setting. But in the historical setting, I could imagine an alternate history where coffee could have been made illegal and scapegoated like marijuana. And what I mean by that is that when coffee starts to become popular in the Ottoman Empire in the 15th, 16th centuries, and then it enters Egypt, there are authorities that, while not quite as harsh as against hashish, they say a lot of this, similar things, that coffee excites the mind, it can, be, uh, it can cause moral problems in society, there are sultans in the Ottoman Empire that close down coffee houses, and also they do it because there's this is where political people and possible revolutionaries get together and gather, and they don't want those meeting places. Uh, but coffee enters Europe uh, not too long before hashish. It really comes around in the 1700s, 1800s, and this is where coffee houses start to open up all, the, all over the place. So if we were to follow that argument, that quote that you just mentioned, that it's associated with, you know, troublemakers or revolutionaries or whatever, then someone out there could write an alternate history of coffee being prohibited or whatever, or being this illegal consumable. Yeah. So when the marijuana trade kicks off, or maybe not trade, but it starts to enter Europe in the 1800s, there's a club that you mentioned, um, the Club des Hashishins, and I'm not going to try the <laughs> French pronunciation of it, mm -hmm. but I'd never heard about this, but there's a lot of cameos by famous people that pop up here. So what's that all about? Uh, yeah. So so by by 1840. <clears throat> so this is about 40 years after, uh, you know, these soldiers are getting lit uh, over in Egypt. So yeah, the hashish has started to flow into Europe. It becomes a bit of a uh, 
I don't know. It's trending, <laughs> for want of a better <laughs> word. Like, yeah, a lot of word. There's a lot of think pieces. Twitter's blowing <laughs> up. Have you tried this new thing? Um, and so uh, there's academic interest. There's people who are trying it as a recreational drug. There's medicinal uh, interest in this. There's a lot of papers written. Um, and eventually, a doctor in 1840 named Dr. Jacques Joseph Moreau, no relation to the guy who fused uh, humans and animals. Yeah, who was uh, who was in that movie? Uh, the War of the Weird Hat, Marlon Brando. Yeah, such a weird don't movie. picture Brando. <laughs> um, so he's a leading psychiatrist, and he reads a scientific article. Uh, that claims that Egyptians are less susceptible to certain diseases that plagued Europeans because of their consumption of hashish, which um, now very much checks out with what we know of the plants, uh, not only uh, medicinal uses for symptom control and treating conditions, but as a preventative. Um, so this piques his curiosity, he acquires some hashish, which by now is not, not that hard to find. Um, he does an N1 experiment on himself, uh, which is, you know, you, you consume the drug that you want to test. This was also a uh, standard uh, medical procedure at the time um, for, for doctors and researchers to do this. And he comes to, uh, he comes to believe, and, and now it's, fairly certain so anybody who's had an edible he's eating hashish anybody who's had an edible knows that uh you know 10 milligrams of thc if you eat it is you know analogous in in certain ways to maybe having like a glass and a half of wine a hundred milligrams of thc uh can i swear on your podcast yeah i'll just put the e next to it on itunes so okay <laughs> sure all right listen oh, no, no, I don't want to go that far. It will mess you up, <laughs> you know, and create a very uh, 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 disorienting experience unlike anything you've probably experienced in your life. It can be pleasant. Uh, it can be uh, valuable. You can learn things about yourself. I'm not saying it's always a bad experience, but it's not analogous to a glass and a half of wine. And, and this doctor... Um, has this this kind of experience and he believes hey you know one of my main interests is is studying um sort of insanity and uh psychological breaks and maybe this will prove useful for me uh in doing this but i don't think i can both have this experience and observe this experience at the same time so i need some guinea pigs uh to study, he comes up with an idea of, well, who would who would want to do this? What kind of person would want to do this and let me observe them? And how can I pull this off? So he reaches out uh, to all the sort of leading lights. He's in Paris. Uh, all the leading lights of literature and culture in Paris, and he invites them to come to the first meeting of what he calls the club, the hashishians, the hashish club. Um, and he checks his, uh, his evite that he sent <laughs> out and 
he gets yeses from uh, Alexandre Dumas, Victor Hugo, uh, Balzac, Baudelaire, and and many other people um, say, yeah, sounds amazing. Uh, so, you, you know, you have Dumas is the author of The Count of Monte Cristo and The Three Musketeers, but not yet. Um, Victor Hugo uh, wrote Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And, uh, you know, these are heavy hitters of not just the time, but people we still look back on and and say what an incredible era in um, art and literature that flourished in Paris at the time. But um, and this is like uh, when I talk about like sort of greenwashing cannabis history, um, I'm not saying that that's what's central to these people's lives or the only reason that they are these celebrated artists. I'm just saying you've never heard this story that all of these famous people who uh, created this incredible creative output had this cannabis club. You know, it's 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 as preposterous as talking about reggae music at length and never mentioning weed you know um it's it's this attempt to erase history you know and and for obvious reasons because if we start to understand this plant as as a creative uh stimulus for for this uh revered output then we have to acknowledge that there may be benefits to this plant. And then we begin to chip away at the rationales such as they exist for prohibition. So, um, you know, I think that that's what makes this such a fun and important story to tell. Um, and then this through line all the way back to Napoleon and Egypt, it just, um, it's, yeah, like I said, we did, we did 12 episodes in the first season of great moments in weed history. They're all available now. Uh, wherever you get your podcasts, this is one of my favorites. You know, this is one of the ones, um, and this is one of the ones when I talk to people, uh, I should maybe explain, you know, we met at a podcasting conference. There was a really cool meetup that, uh, was organized for history, uh, podcasters. You know, I went in somewhat, uh, nervous about how I would be received in the community. Uh, and, um, but this is an episode I always mention when I talk to other sort of history buffs or other uh, history podcasters or people who are coming at it from that perspective because I think it hits on a lot of the reasons why people love history in general. Um, these unexpected connections, these human stories, um, and and sort of learning new things that give you a new perspective or understanding on uh on how we got here, I guess. Yeah, and I'm curious about the experiment. Do you know much about it? Like, how many milligrams do they consume of THC? Was it a lot, or uh, do you know more about it? Well, you know, the, the the THC itself was not really discovered or understood in such until, you know, really the 1960s. Um so they don't know what the active ingredient is, No, never mind being able to identify um, how much of it is in any given sample. Now, of course, through some form of self-experimentation and note-taking, you can get an understanding of that. You know, you can make a batch of brownies, eat a brownie, see how strong it is, 
and then say, oh, I think a, a quarter of a brownie would be a much better idea. So it, it's not that they're completely in the dark, but they have no idea what THC is. They certainly have no way to measure it. We know from the strength of their experiences and what they described that these were pretty large doses. They're not the glass and a half of wine doses. Um, and, and when we understand that his goal in this is to is to in essentially uh, uh, simulate a psychotic break, which doesn't happen, but that's what he's looking for. Um, you know, that's by design. Um, and we do know quite, you know, these, this is a room full of writers getting uh, completely lit. So we have different accounts of this from the time. So we do know quite a little, uh, quite a bit about how it all how it all happens. Um, and, and so the doctor, he makes this sort of, uh, potion almost, uh, it, it, what he does is everybody comes over to this one old house. Um, it's the hotel Lawson. It still stands. You can go there and visit. I haven't had the pleasure, but, uh, I definitely will not miss it if I, if, and when I get to Paris and, uh, anybody from Paris who wants to uh, let me crash on their couch you can get in touch through the uh, great moments in weed history social media um, but the doctor makes this he, he serves everybody uh, a meal and then they have coffee uh, and blended into the coffee he has this little potion which mixes hashish nutmeg cloves cinnamon pistachio, orange juice, sugar, and butter. And butter is really important because it helps the uh, the THC activate, essentially. It's like 90% um, of the ingredients of a holiday drink you'd get at Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's is that that extra 10% is 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 quite uh, a key, but yeah. yeah, it's it's I've actually I've actually made it uh, to the best of my ability. I did it for an episode of of the show Bong Appetit um, that that both Abdullah, my partner in the podcast, and I worked on. Um, it, it's delicious. I mean, it's really tasty um, and uh, it's quite effective. Um, and so we have one of the uh, members of the club describing how this goes down. Um, and I, I'm just going to read a short passage from his description because I think it's just really sets the scene. Um, it was in an old house on the Ile de St. Louis uh, where the strange club held its monthly seance. The doctor stood by a buffet on which lay a platter filled with small Japanese saucers. He spooned a morsel of paste or greenish jam about as large as a thumb from a crystal vase and placed it next to the silver spoon on each saucer. The doctor's face radiated enthusiasm. His eyes glittered. His purple cheeks were aglow. The veins in his temples stood out strongly and he breathed heavily through dilated nostrils. This will be this will be deducted from your share in paradise, he said as he <laughs> handed me my portion. So that's uh, that's how you got your uh, that's how you got your experimental dose of this of this drug. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details When you were describing the the setup here, it's all these artists in the late 1800s. Um, something this reminded me of is I had another guest on the show that talked about prohibition, how it happened in America, but also how certain spirits and alcoholic drinks were made illegal well into the 20th century or even prohibited from import into America. One of those drinks that's also popular at this time in France was absinthe because uh, from what the guest told me, there was a grape crop that failed. So to fill in the gap for a few years in France, absinthe became popular because it's made from other ingredients. Uh, But once the wine industry made a comeback in France, they had a propaganda campaign to delegitimize absinthe, saying that you could go blind, it'll make you insane, it'll cause hallucinations. It's connected with these surrealist painters like Pablo Picasso. I don't know, is uh, is there kind of like a hashish absinthe connection from what you know going on in late 1800s France? This is just what entered my mind. Well, I think the one obvious connection is, um, you know, the idea of these drug scares. Um, And there's always, you know, in these societies, accepted drugs, celebrated drugs, especially when we talk in terms of, say, recreational use. I don't really love that word, but it it gets to what I'm talking about. Um, And outlawed, marginalized, oppressed drugs. And so, you know, running through all of this and and worth mentioning is, you know, alcohol as this sort of establishment drug. Well, what's the drug the establishment? And I I should I should preface this by saying I drink and enjoy alcohol. I recognize it as both a wonderful and destructive force in our lives and in our our society, you know, uh. I uh, can see my very small three-bottle wine collection from where I'm sitting right now, and I recognize it as, you know, something that, you know, a lot of people struggle very mightily with. But in any objective way, um, the idea that cannabis is going to be forcibly suppressed and alcohol is going to be, you know available everywhere in our lives that just doesn't make any sense um you know and and when you look when you talk about how uh society turned against absinthe uh as soon as the wine was ready to flow again you know that's very much how authority works 
you know, they made up a bunch. I'm not saying nobody could have problems with absinthe, but all of that sort of idea that it leads to madness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, was part of this propaganda campaign. Everything uh, that was used to make cannabis illegal was part of a propaganda campaign. Um, and underpinning it all is, you know, an authoritarian regime does not mind you going home and drinking yourself to sleep. Um, they don't necessarily want you smoking weed and thinking about a different way society might be organized. They don't necessarily want you... Um, you mentioned the coffee thing. It's like ultimately I think they realized coffee's no threat. Um, but there was that time where they thought where coffee is brewed, so too is revolution. Um, it's not the coffee. It's 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 the threat to authoritarian power. Um, so I think that is maybe the thing that absinthe and um, absinthe and cannabis have in common. I don't know uh, so much about absinthe history to sort of get into any more uh, detail on it. Well, I guess the interesting point of all this is the through line from where it goes in France uh, up into the United States today, because as we all know, all history culminates in the United States. And I mean, really, we're the pinnacle of civilization. So if you can't tell a history story that connects to America, I mean, there's really no point in telling it is what I'm trying to say with everything. Okay, so at this point, is marijuana criminalized in France? And in the United States, I, I really know nothing about this topic. I don't know when it's criminalized, if it's criminalized in America, does France influence this? And basically, how do we get to the point of uh, where we are today? Sure. Let me just quickly uh, uh, dispatch with this wonderful club, because uh, I think it it has some really interesting after effects. Uh, the Dr. Moreau, not uh, Brando, um, he becomes a pioneer of the study of how drugs affect the central nervous system. He writes a huge book called Hashish and Mental Illness. Um, many of the things he believes are wrong, uh, but he's still a pioneer in this field. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Baudelaire writes a book called The Artificial Paradises that is much more uh, about his personal experiences with hashish and other drugs um uh you know a lot of these guys uh continue and i believe it was an all-male club um you know they continue to write about the experience it continues to be sort of woven into their uh literary output um so you know it, it's the the club lasts a few years um and its effect on literature is ongoing um, in terms of, you know, right now, France is just and at the time there was there was no prohibition against hashish um, that comes later. I don't know French uh, cannabis history as well as I should. But um, what I do know is up until like maybe even five years ago, uh, they have very harsh laws there, you know, for a place that we think of as, um, you know, uh, liberal in certain ways. Um, they've had very harsh laws against cannabis. And, uh, you know, much as racism plays a huge, I would say, central role in how cannabis becomes illegal in the United States, 
Um, that is also a part of uh, why the French laws against cannabis are so uh, have been so harsh is because they are still associated uh, there with predominantly Muslim countries. And so um, that anti-immigration strain in society, that xenophobic strain in society um, is a big part of those laws in France. And uh, as I can talk to uh, speak to much more specifically and in detail, that is really the story of how cannabis becomes illegal in the United States. Uh, it's associated um, with, you know, when you have, can, you know, cannabis as the hemp plant, cannabis as, you know, this celebrated way uh, to have textiles and food and, and all these things without its psychoactive use. Dates to back to colonial days. It was an extremely important crop for pre-colonial uh, America. Uh, it was something that could be grown and and exploited domestically. Um, so that helped the colonies be a lot more self-sufficient, which helped them conceive of breaking away uh, from England and the monarchy, you know. Um, because they had this crop that they could use to replace a lot of the things they would otherwise have to um, import from from England. Uh, so th that history has its own trajectory. Huge fortunes were made in the colonies with hemp. Wars were fought over hemp. Um, that history is sort of one history. When we start to see psychoactive use of cannabis in the United States well after the revolutionary times. I get to pour some cold water. Uh, yes, many of the founding fathers grew hemp. I have never seen um, uh, evidence to convince me that they were uh, using it psychoactively. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people believe that. Uh, you can go on Google right now and find somebody who will tell you it's true, but... Uh, there's this thing called evidence. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying I haven't seen evidence. We just don't know one way um, or another. We don't know one way or another. And, um, you know, my suspicion is, uh, you know, people would have uh, written more about it if they were getting high. Um, but, you know, get to like the early 1900s and we start to see psychoactive cannabis showing up uh in two places and associated with two different groups. Uh, one are uh, refugees fleeing a war in Mexico who start to come up into, you know, the southwestern United States, um, and they're bringing marijuana with an H with them. Uh, and the other is coming up through the port in New Orleans from the Caribbean um, and being smoked and uh, enjoyed by uh, lots of people, you know, around the ports um, and particularly becomes kind of pronounced in the, uh, you know, sort of emerging world of jazz musicians. You know, not, not, not as just jazz musicians, but jazz musicians are very high, become very high profile people. Um, they're on the radio nationally. They tour at a time when most people don't travel at all. Um, 
And it doesn't take long to think, well, what do these two groups of people have in common? Well, uh, jazz musicians of the era uh, were predominantly black and Mexican refugees of the era were predominantly Mexicans. Um, So this all gets seen through a prism of scapegoating and racism. Um, The other thing that's happening is in 1934, and this gets to gets back to your, you know, example with the absinthe in 1934 prohibition uh, ends, alcohol prohibition ends by and large. in 1937, we have the federal uh, prohibition of cannabis began. This is also no coincidence. Um, you have built up this police state around alcohol, and all of a sudden that ends. And, you know, three years later, we began the war on drugs, basically. And we began it against a plant that's associated with black people and with Mexican people. Um, The documented campaign that we see from the government of the time and that's reflected in like the Hearst papers and elsewhere, it's overtly racist. I mean, it's, it's not subtle. It's not dog whistles. It's just outwardly like, um, you know, this this plan is associated with black people and Mexican people. It makes them murderous and crazy. And, you know, if you try it once, you might kill your whole family. Um, so that that propaganda campaign is especially effective because most people in the United States have actually never encountered cannabis. They were able to create this prohibition um before most people even had any direct or indirect experience uh, with the drugs. So that is um, what we're still, in essence, digging ourselves out from under now. Yeah, so you would say that you'd see a a through line from these different points we looked at, whether it's Egyptian officials or French officials in Egypt looking at lower classes or their own French soldiers and thinking— they're going to become less effective if they use this. They're scapegoating different groups of people. And then marijuana, it's sort of a neutral vessel by which they can use it and project power. Is that how you see it being used by different authorities? Yeah, I think there's that, you know, that one idea that maybe they do believe their own propaganda on some level. Um, But then, uh, particularly in the United States, it becomes sort of this uh, vessel for social control. Um, you know, you can, and, and this is something that goes right up through the Nixon era and the Reagan era and, and really through, I, I, I'm, I'm picking on certain administrations that shall we say leaned into, uh, this, but the arrests never stopped. Um, so if, you know, to your listeners on the right, um, yeah. 800,000, 900,000 people a year were being arrested under the Clinton administration and slightly less than that under the Obama administration. I'm not pointing fingers uh, in a left-right way. What I'm saying is this becomes a way to arrest a lot of people and put them through the criminal justice system. And this becomes a, a way to disrupt dissident communities. 
you know, if you see a group of people and you don't like the political activity they're engaging in, well, there's all sorts of constitutional reasons why you can't just go after them for that reason. But if you can use drugs and more specifically cannabis, because it's just more widely used as an excuse to target these communities, um, that's very effective. Yeah. So it looks like looking at history through this, through cannabis usage, it's like a subaltern history, which is a big fancy pants history term for marginalized groups, some non-mainstream groups. So you can really get a different perspective of history here. Yeah. So thanks for going over all this. And um, I know you're, as of this recording, you're in between seasons one and two. So what do you have lined up for season two as some sneak previews here? Oh, well, that's a that's a great question. I should explain how the show works because it will explain why I can't actually answer that question. The, <laughs> the format of the show is, uh, as I explained, it's great moments in weed history with Abdullah and Bean. I'm Bean. Uh, my partner Abdullah and I have both been journalists, media makers, uh, talking about cannabis uh, 25 years between the two of us. Um, but the way we do the show is each episode – I research a subject uh, just like uh, what we just talked about with Napoleon in Egypt and the Club de Hashisha, and I write out uh, my version of it. When I sit down with Abdullah to record, uh, he has no idea what the <laughs> subject is going to be. Um, so we get all of his natural reactions. Um, there's a lot of humor in the show. Uh, so uh, I hope I've given the impression that I take all of this history very seriously. I take the research end of it very seriously. I put a lot of time and effort into it. Um, and then when we sit down to record, uh, we roll up a, a, a nice uh, legal joint here in California where we record uh, we start to blaze. I start to tell him the story, um, and he reacts to it in real time. Uh, he's got questions. He's got asides. We we're both, uh, you know, like to make each other laugh. Um, so I can't, uh, uh, I can't reveal. I have a whole list of my next twelve episodes. I have m way more than that. I'm still narrowing them down, um, but I can't reveal any of them. Uh, just yet, but but there are twelve already, uh, you know, posted that you can listen to. Everything from uh, Willie Nelson smoked a joint on the roof of the White House, uh, Maya Angelou's life transformed the first time she got high. Like I said, we did a Carl Sagan episode. Uh, Bob Dylan got the Beatles high for the first time. Um, we did one on how the coffee shops in Amsterdam came to be which is another great sort of countercultural uh, grassroots story with a lot of uh, resistance and a lot of humor. Um, so I would say, yeah, just check out if, if this sounds fun to you, um, you know, dip into the season one, there's 12 episodes for you. And, and by the time you are, are, you know, immersed in that, uh, I think season two will be coming out pretty soon. All right. And where can people find you online? Um, best, I mean, great moments in weed history.com will bring you to the podcast, uh, David Beanenstock.com, 
Uh, we'll bring you to my personal website, which has a lot of my journalism and sort of uh, the best place to get in touch with me. Uh, we have social media for great moments in weed history. That's a great way to get in touch. Uh, if you check this out uh, and, and it inspires you to listen to the show, you know, definitely uh, drop drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. We love feedback. Great. And I'll have a link to all those things in the show notes for this episode so people can follow up there if they want to. So, David, thanks again for joining us. All right. Well, that was the episode for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. First of all, I'd like to thank the Knowlton's Rangers, and especially our spy masters, Baron Fraser, Carl from Norway, Chris from Maine, Moondoggy from Ohio, and Rick Knowlton. And I'll explain what that means in a second. If you want to support the show and help me keep producing this content, there are four easy ways for you to do it. One, subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to do that, you can go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and there you'll find instructions. Two, join our Facebook group, which you can find if you just search for History Unplugged. And please like and share posts that I put up about new episodes. Three, submit a question to me so that I can answer it on air. You can email me at info at historyonthenet.com or leave a voicemail. And again, go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and you'll find instructions. Lastly, and I think this one is the best, is to become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were an elite reconnaissance and espionage detachment of the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War, but it's also the name of the History Unplugged membership program. Learn how to join by going to patreon.com unplugged. So here's what you get if you become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. If you join at the level of Scout, you can get early access to new podcast episodes, along with enjoying absolutely every single episode of the History Unplugged podcast ad-free, all 270 and counting episodes. If you join at the level of Intelligence Officer, you can also get access to premium episodes, like a multi-part series on the life of Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat soldier in World War II, or the 10-part series Ottoman Lives, a series that looks at the cast of characters that made up the Ottoman Empire, such as the Sultan, the Eunuch, the Harem Servant Girl, and the Soldier. And finally, if you join at the level of Spymaster, you get all the same stuff as the Scouts and Intelligence Officers, but you also get a shout-out to you and or your business at the end of each episode, a three-pack of hardcover history books, plus you will be put at the very front of the line for me to answer your question about history, and I can guarantee I will dedicate an episode that's about an hour long or so to your question. Sign up at patreon.com slash unplugged. Again, that's patreon.com slash unplugged. Anyway, those are the ways you can help out the show. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history-related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? 
Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Calitrin is a weight loss supplement made from collagen protein and digestive enzymes. Calitrin is designed to assist the body in repairing and rebuilding lean muscle using top quality ingredients. The reason it contains collagen, which is the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the body, is because it decreases as we age. Because Calitrin rebuilds this critical protein, it promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. I tried it for a month, slept great, felt more energetic, and noticeably shed weight that was gained over the holidays. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. Here are some customer testimonials. Maria in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitrin. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. And Diane not only lost weight, but found relief from arthritis. This week, you can take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is extremely easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and you'll get a link to the special offer. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605. 